Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be here on this fake spring day. If you're new, my name's Rob. I'm the lead pastor, and I often stick my foot in my mouth. So it's often a little fun to see what's going to happen here. But we're going to go to the scripture before I say something that I'm going to really regret. No. If you were in the back, then you missed the most precious and heartfelt worship of the morning with a little girl right over here dancing during that song. It was just beautiful, no shame, totally abandoned, spinning around, and I hope that's what my heart looks like to God, and I know it's, a lot of times it's not, but I'm sure that'll come up in our scripture. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven In fact, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? But then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a man who builds his house on the rock. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and yet it did not fall because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. God, would you open our minds and our hearts to your word today, that we would hear what you have to say to us, that your word would remain. Amen. Well, to uh, illustrate this idea, I was talking to a friend who had told me about this building that was being built in Chicago. Now, in November of 2015, the city officials approved the plans for the Wanda Vista Tower. It's right there near near Lake Michigan. And when it's completed, this super tall skyscraper will feature 406 luxury condos, 192 five-star hotel rooms, and if you've been to Chicago, you know how much parking stinks, 345 uh, stall parking garage. It, when it's completed, it will be the third tallest building at 1,186 feet and I believe 93 stories. It's not phenomenal. However, they could, and it's not going to be completed till like 2020. And so because I spent a little time in architectural engineering, I know they could have shaved off at least six months, maybe longer, if they would have not started by deciding to take these drills and drill over 100 feet down into the ground because this Chicago soil is swampy and they're only just a few hundred feet from Lake Michigan. First, they drill these cylindrical caissons that you see here, and then they fill them with these giant metal tubes. Once those are in place, then they put a concrete structure inside of that, and then they fill that with this giant, well, there you go, so there's the concrete, then this giant metal thing, then these giant cages of rebar, and then they pour hundreds and hundreds of cubic yards of concrete into those 100-foot-deep caissons. Then 
They spend days, if not weeks, digging out a hole big enough to fill one and a quarter million pounds of rebar, like little metal poles. Well, actually, large metal poles. Some of them a person couldn't get their hand around. And then after they do that, then they have hundreds of cement trucks come in and pour cement in there for over 4,000 cubic yards, so like 40,000, almost 40,000 cubic feet of concrete, like mixture, to go down so that it creates this 10-foot deep solid block structure foundation. All, all, think about this, all of it, so that when the building is actually built, no one will ever see this, and no one will really ever think about it. Now, why? Why would you spend so much time on something that really no one will ever see, no one will ever think about, and when you look at the building, the building's gonna look good regardless of if you put the foundation there, at least for a while it would. And the reality of construction work, if you've ever been in it, is quite stressful because there are huge bonuses if the builders can finish ahead of schedule, but staying on schedule is often challenging. You know, cement trucks get stuck in Chicago traffic, or maybe they break down, or maybe the owners decide that they want to change the plans, because that never happens, and so the architects have to change their drawings, which means the engineers have to recalculate how the building's gonna stand up, which means all the people on the construction site have to wait until they get new plans and then go forward. It's very stressful. So, why would a company spend so much time and, and money, this is over a billion dollar building that's gonna take over three years to complete, but why would they spend so much time on that foundation? You know, right? Because we'd be fools not to. How long do you think that building would last if there was no foundation there? Next to the notorious Windy City? Next to a giant lake with a river that runs through the city? We would say anyone who would build a building of any substantial size or money would be a fool not to put the right foundation down. The building would never last if we didn't do that. Yet, this happens. What seems so obvious to this picture goes past us every day in our personal lives. We just miss it. If we don't miss it, we don't take the seriousness of the reality of a good foundation. Now, I, you might not agree, but I have some reasons why, and that's what we're gonna discuss today on why that is and what we can do about it. So back to Matthew 7. The context of Matthew 7 and how it relates to this, is that Jesus began his little episode by selecting 12 people that were gonna be his official followers. Now, he did that for various reasons, but you know, another story for another day. So he selects them, he sets them down, and he starts telling them what his kingdom is gonna be like. If he was in charge of the world, this is what it would go by, this is how he would run things. And it was very common for someone that was a prophet or someone that was a king to do this type of thing. Not only that, but these 12 followers were then surrounded by this giant crowd who are listening on to what Jesus is talking about. As they're talking about what his kingdom would be like, I kinda wonder what the disciples are thinking at that moment. 
So if you want to look, it's, it's Matthew 5. I mean, they could be saying things like, hmm, do I really believe that the meek, those with power under control, will inherit the world? Or do I really believe that it's better to give than to receive? Or how, how exactly does turning the other cheek when I've been slapped actually help? Because I think it would just give me two red cheeks. Or, or why can't I give to the poor and not tell anyone about it? Or why can't I pray and not tell anyone about it? Or why can't I go without something and not tell anyone about it? I mean, can you imagine what it would have been like if they would have had Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, Twitter? <laughs> you don't want me to tell anyone? And wait a second, did Jesus just say that calling someone an idiot is the same as murder? I don't, I don't know exactly what the disciples were thinking, but those were some of the ideas that Jesus was proposing and saying his kingdom would be like. And he starts that whole series with this idea of blessed, this, this Hebrew word that actually does mean happy. Happy are those who are at the end of their rope because with less of you, there's more of God. And you're truly happy when you're content with who you are. No more, no less, because the moment you receive that, you'll find out you have all you need. Or you're truly happy when you work up a good appetite for God because he's the best food and drink you'll ever need. And you're truly happy when you care because at the moment you find yourself being careful, you'll find yourself being cared for. These are a different way of saying some of those things that are known as the Beatitudes. And they sound like Jesus is giving us a, a language to talk about what it means to be happy. Everybody okay with that so far? All right, so then he makes this little, it, maybe it's a shift, maybe it's not, but all of a sudden, just a couple verses later, he starts talking about, hey, you've heard the command, you know, do not commit adultery. But I say that anyone who looks at someone else with lust has committed adultery in their heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to sin like that, you should just gouge it out because better for your eye to go to hell than your whole body to go to hell. And that, that doesn't sound happy. And then he says, you know, you've heard it said in the law, you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies too. Pray for those that, that persecute you, and in that way you will be acting like true children of heaven. Okay, gouging my eye out doesn't sound happy. Loving my enemies doesn't sound happy. That sounds more like being holy. And I think this little idea, this subtle little shift that we could maybe see in this text is what each of us internally face every day. Like when things get hard, do I want to be happy or do I want to be holy? Can I, can I have both? Jesus is actually telling people then and I believe today that we can decide how we're going to live. Happy, holy, maybe both. I mean, he talks about prayers that are actual prayers that are holy unto God, even though no one else hears them. And he talks about a way to give to the needy that is holy and no one else needs to know. And he talks about good eyes and bad eyes. And he talks about God and money. And he talks about good fruit and bad fruit. And he talks about temporary treasure and everlasting treasure. 
And he follows that up with doing the will of God or not doing the will of God. Or hearing God and doing it, putting it into practice, or hearing God and not doing it. Now, I think there's three reasons why we just don't take this very seriously, or we miss it. And the first is because we don't think Jesus' standard is realistic. We don't think his standard is is realistic. People look at this list and they see an archaic, unattainable set of ideals that Jesus never actually meant to promote. You think about conversations that you've had about the Bible, especially about these. Really gouge out your eye. Jesus didn't really mean gouge out your eye. He was just using hyperbole. Or "Mm, Jesus doesn't actually want you to love your enemies. That just sounds unrealistic. Call someone an idiot. I can't not call someone an idiot. There's a lot of idiots in the world. But I'm not going to murder someone. You know, so that happens more often than we want to admit. And I I don't know in that moment if the disciples actually believed these things, but I'm convinced that the disciples believed that Jesus believed those things and Jesus was actually doing them. They watched him do them day after day. They watched him not call people idiots and not murder people. They watched him not lust after people. They watched him give to the poor. They watched him love his enemies. And they started going, yeah, this is actually possible. And, and Jesus, in Philippians 2, tells us that he gave up his divine privileges and his divine power and lived as a human. Meaning, I would say, that this list isn't just possible, but actually something that humans can do. If Jesus was fully human and he gave up his divine power and privilege, he is living out what it means to be dependent on God and to follow in his power to do those things, and he invites us to do the same. So that's the first reason. I think the second reason that this is something we don't really think about is that people think that Jesus' way is just one of many options. That Jesus' way is just one of many options. See, in our postmodern, post-Christian, multidimensional way of living, we think Jesus and his teaching and his way of living is just one of many recommended ways. Oh, you have that way, I have this way. Like, we're all seeking goodness for others. It's, it's okay. And you're free to decide what you think is the best way to live. And I, I think we do decide. In fact, I would say that we decide every single day. We decide if we believe Jesus' kingdom or not when we get up in the morning and we make decisions about how we'll spend our money and how we'll trust our money, if we trust in the money or if we trust in God. I think every day we make decisions on if we're going to love people as God's children or if we're going to see people as God's object to be lusted after or used or abused or opponents in our way. We make decisions every day about what we believe about these lists. If you decide to lie to a friend because you don't want to hurt their feelings, then you are saying that this kingdom of being fake or protecting someone from reality is better than Jesus' kingdom of speaking the truth in love. You are deciding. I'm deciding. And when we take the high road, when our coworkers do something dumb and they don't deserve 
to, they don't deserve your high road and they probably wouldn't reciprocate your high road, but you do it anyway. You are making decision about what you believe about Jesus' kingdom. We do it every day. And if we're honest, we think we know better than God what will make us truly happy. And we make many, many decisions. But Jesus says there's really only one decision. And that decision either leads to life, and by life I mean goodness, and I mean wholeness, and prosperity, and satisfaction, really a restoration with God and others. It's that kind of a life. Or it leads to destruction. And by destruction I mean ruin. I mean brokenness and sadness. We're separated from God and his goodness and security. And there's really only one decision. It just gets played out every day in many different ways. In fact, I think all of scripture actually agrees with this, but it might be most poignant and most succinctly stated in Psalm 1. Psalm 1 says that happy are those who don't listen to the wicked, who don't go where sinners go, and who don't do what evil people do. They love the Lord's teachings, and they think about those teachings day and night. They are strong like trees planted by rivers, trees that produce fruit in season, and its leaves never wither, and everything they do succeeds. That is the person who I would say is holy, sounds holy, except this this psalm says that that person's happy. And it says what it means, because the wicked are not like that. They are like chaff that the wind blows away that have no seeds in them. So the wicked will not escape God's punishment. Sinners will not worship with God's people, and this is because the Lord takes care of his people, but the wicked will be destroyed. Life or ruin? Every day. And see, it's really not about choosing holiness or happiness. Somehow we got tricked. Somehow we got hoodwinked into thinking that that was what it was all about. But Jesus says, and all scripture says, it's about life and it's about ruin. It's about being connected to God and being disconnected from God. And the third reason they think we don't take this very seriously is that we think we think that people think that knowing is more important than doing. That knowing is more important than doing. Some friends of ours were telling us about their son who's really intelligent in that like gifted and talented thing or whatever. And anyway, he started to do, as he got older, he started to do worse and worse and worse in this reading comprehension. If you remember reading comprehension tests, you had this giant paragraph or page that you had to read and then you had to answer some questions about it. And his scores were going like this, down and down and down. And so the parents came in and talked to the teacher. And finally, as they were talking, the the parents said, can we just watch him do even a sample test? Just see how he's, you know, reading this or how he's doing this. And, And so the teacher says, you know, I think that can be arranged. And they went to the media center and they pulled up a test and he clicked on the starts and he reads the little instruction that's about a sentence long. And then there's these two screens of text. And as soon as he reads the instructions, he starts scrolling all the way past 
the paragraphs and he gets to the first question. He reads the first question and then they see him scroll all the way back up and then he sticks his hand on the screen and he's going like this and, he's, and they're like, what? what are you doing? He's like, well, you know, I'm looking for the answer. What? Well, what do you mean? Do you do all your tests like that? He said, yeah. Why? Well, because aren't you supposed to read those paragraphs and then answer the questions? Well, why would I do that? I don't know what I'm looking for. First, I read the question, and then I go look for the answer, because that's what you're supposed to do. And, and in the Western world, we've been taught that that's what you're supposed to do. That if you know the right answer, that's all you need. And it's true today, and I think it was true in Jesus' day. I think that's why Jesus said, therefore, I mean, he's summing up an entire afternoon of teaching. And he says, therefore, anyone who hears my words and put them into practice is like a wise man, a wise person, who built their house on the rock. And the rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man, a foolish person who built their house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. There are two people, two houses, two decisions, but only one crisis. The words are exactly the same. In the, the winds blew and beat against the house, the, the, the rains came down, the streams rose up. It's, it's all the similar, it's all the same. But that's how life really is, right? Like there are storms in all of our lives. People who love Jesus and people who don't know Jesus, they all experience hardships. They all experience setbacks. They all face obstacles. And God isn't saying like, oh, if you believe in me, then magically everything is gonna be okay. That's just not how it works. And if you've ever been told that, I'm sorry. The rains come down. The streams come up. The wind blows and beats against everything that you and I build in life. We may not be building billion-dollar towers, but we're all building stuff. Every day, brick by brick, decision by decision. And every day we can decide, is it going to last or is it not? And by the outside, they look all the same. Remember when we started, nobody looks at the foundation. No one says, ooh, tell me about your foundation. Yeah, that's super sexy. No, no one does that. Sorry, I got distracted. But the the rain comes, and the crisis comes, and some of us are in situations where it's tough, and we think this one crisis is gonna destroy us, and the reality is this one crisis might actually show you who you are. Not just you, it will show all the people around you who you are and what you're made of. And that's not to glorify ourselves. That's to say if we build on the rock, the rock that is the reality that Christ is God's son, that he came into the world to save us and to live as a perfect human so we don't have to live as a perfect human because I know I can't. That rock will always, always last. 
So when you're in your reins and you're hearing the wind beating against the decisions you make, are they built on the rock? Or were they built somewhere else? See, happy people do not look for their happiness in their circumstances. Because we all know circumstances change really, really, really quickly. One doctor's phone call, one giant lie in a relationship, One tragic accident with a teenage kid. Just like that. Truly happy people do not find their happiness in their circumstances. Truly happy people find their happiness in, by looking for wisdom in their dependence on God. And then they find their happiness in that dependence on God. Jesus was dependent on God all throughout his life. Every single day he prayed. Every single day he asked the Father for power, for patience, and for favor with the people that he was going with and to. And he asked for the endurance to finish the work that God had given him. And when he was done, he was able to say, Father, it is finished. That's where happy people find their happiness. Truly happy people and their dependence on God. And I know that's not going to sell any bestsellers, but maybe we can be like the disciples who are going, wait, did, did he really just say that? It's another version of being dependent on God. You can't love your enemies without being dependent on God. You can't go in your room and, and pray by yourself and believe that God hears you without being dependent on him. You can't give more than you receive without being dependent on him, but that's the adventure of really living the life that will last forever, the life that will be holy and, as a byproduct, will be happy and really won't look that weird. So what does it look like for you to practice? Jesus says, those who hear and do are the ones who build on the rock. Hear and do means to put it into practice. Now just think for a minute as we close what it means to practice something. Anybody want to take a stab at it? What does it mean to practice? Practice over and over. What else? What does it mean to practice? Make mistakes. What else does it mean to practice? Try to get better. All right, so what do you practice? There's no right answer. (laughs) Practice what's important to you. Sure, what else? Sometimes you practice what needs to be done. Yeah, sometimes you practice so that you can actually get it right when it matters. Yeah. I'm, I'm amazed at, at, it's basketball season, I'm amazed at the number of people who can't make free throws. Right? It's like, it's one of the, I mean, I can make that, and I'm not a basketball player. It's like one of the easiest shots, but over and over and over. So when it matters, we can make it. I would say we also practice what we love. 
Some of us call it hobbies, but really, when you think about it, we're just practicing what we love. So I think part of this starts with knowing what it means to practice. Because remember, knowing, hearing, and knowing, and even understanding, they're all important. But just being able to hear and know the truth is like holding a can of paint. All right, go with me for just a little bit. If you think that painting your room is gonna make you, you happy, and you think, oh, it's, it's, it's blue. Blue is just, it's gonna do it. Knowing that and hearing that is like going to the store and getting a blue can of paint. But if you're just holding a blue can of paint in your room, then knowing it and hearing it isn't gonna do anything. But so many of us think that. The only way that knowing and hearing and even understanding makes a difference is if you open the paint and you actually apply it to your room so it becomes that color. That's why Jesus is saying put it into practice. It makes no difference unless you apply it. And, and Jesus says at the end of this story, When he had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teachings because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. The biggest difference that Jesus was doing was, yes, he was giving simple word pictures to explain deep truths, but the other thing he was doing is challenging them to apply it. And and he's not, by the way, he's not going for amazement. He's going for belief that actually leads to action. See, if you want to enter Jesus' kingdom, then all you have to do is believe in him. If you want to be at home in Jesus' kingdom, then you have to love what he loves. And we can learn to love what Jesus loves. There's a difference between being with people and and even people that you like and being with people who love what you love. We can learn to love what Jesus loves. It starts with forgetting about finding our happiness in our circumstances and finding our happiness in our dependence on him, but then it goes on from there to take time to actually acknowledge that, to say, yes, I want to be dependent on you, God. I need to be dependent on you, and and to start from that place and to believe that and receive that, and we can do that in any of our lives, no matter how good or bad you think you are. And please do not hear that you are horrible, and please do not hear that you need to try harder. This is not about trying harder. This is a gift that Jesus gave us because of who he is that we can believe and receive. When I had the invitation to start in youth ministry, a long time ago. I actually was so excited because I thought, oh my gosh, like someone, someone thinks I can do this, number one, and someone thinks they're gonna pay me to pray and to talk about Jesus and to, and to spend time with God. It's gonna be awesome. And then I realized that a lot of ministry is not praying or spending time with Jesus or talking to others about God. And all of a sudden, my relationship with God started to shrivel and dry and crack. And after three years, I'm like, I'm not going to have anything left if I keep down this road. And so I took a step towards God 
because I'd already received Jesus as my savior, and I believe I received him as my Lord, but I had to start investing in that relationship. I had to start saying, I'm dependent on you. I can't do this on my own. I need to understand your love. I need to understand how, just how amazing you are and what you did and what you still do. And as I did that step by step by step, then, then my relationship with God started to become soft. It started to become life-giving. It started to become this place where, where, where true growth was happening. But in the back of my mind, I was still thinking, well, this is dependent on me. It's my efforts. It's what I'm doing. And finally, I got to this place. And it, it just, it happened most poignantly, two and a half years ago when I walked 110 miles on the Superior Hiking Trail, where I said, I'd been racing triathlons for five or six years, and that's all about finishing fast. And on this hiking trail, I said, I'm not going to go fast. I'm going to walk the scenery. I'm going to notice God's beauty. I'm going to engage with the people he puts in front of me. And something happened in those weeks or several days on this trail, that if I bring them back to mind, all of the learning comes right back. When we say, what does it mean to put this into practice? That's what it means, to engage your mind in how good God is, how strong he is, how beautiful he is. Some people say you take time to smell the roses. Well, to do that's what it means to walk this hike. That's what it means to engage your mind with God, to stop and notice and linger and let your senses get engaged. And God isn't roses, he's so much bigger than that, but it's the idea of noticing in stopping, in engaging, in experiencing, and receiving, and believing it. That's what happiness really stems from. Not in our circumstances, in our dependence. And we all get to decide. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that we could be people who learn to love what you love. Jesus, I thank you for showing us the way to live perfectly and dependently on God. Even though it costs you your life, God, I, I believe it and I receive it. I can't do it on my own. And if there's anyone here that's never actually accepted the gift of what it means that Jesus saves our life, I pray that they would today. God, that they would say, Jesus, I can't do it on my own, but you never asked me to do it on my own. I trust in you. I depend on you. You live the perfect life. You died the sacrificial death, and I receive your resurrection, your forgiveness, and your Holy Spirit in my life to live in me and through me to help me love what you love. God, and if there are people here that prayed that, weeks or months or years ago. God, that I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to them about what it means to be engaged with you, what it means to be dependent on you, what it means to love what you love. Not trying to do it on our own, not looking to build our own kingdom, but to be at home, in your home, 
on the foundation that is the rock of Christ. Speak to us, God, in this time, in our response of your love, of your goodness, and of your strength. May we not be afraid to ask. May we not be afraid to depend. In Jesus' name, amen.